At RIV, we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like Him. This stumbling together is how we live out the truths of the gospel in community each day. As we look to the next generation, we are trusting God to use our Riverview Church family to be a great blessing to our community in Lansing and beyond. We are committed to loving like Jesus as we dream and pray about the future. With our renewed core values, we are looking to take some significant steps over the next two years from increasing our staff with young and diverse leaders, improving our kids and student spaces, planting more churches, and developing a new missional fund for RIV communities to serve our neighborhoods, cities, and towns. These dreams happen as we join together as a church family. So we're asking you three questions. Would you join a RIV community? Where do you plan to be present missionally? And what do you plan on giving financially? Would you pray and consider being a part of this two-year commitment as we entrust our plans to God, pray for lives to be changed, and equip and empower the next generation? Hey, what's going on, Riff? How are you? So nearly 30 years ago, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, uh, and I first stumbled into a Riverview church service. And at that time, we were meeting at the Kellogg Center uh, on the campus of Michigan State in the auditorium there. And we pretty quickly realized that this was the church that we wanted to commit ourselves to. And it, it didn't take very long. And there were a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons was we loved how this church was fiercely committed to uh, scripture, and yet they, were, they weren't jerks about it. And that was kind of a cool thing. Um, we liked that. And in fact, one of the things that we did back then is we were so committed to scripture that we would sing a lot of songs that came directly out of Bible verses. And one of those Bible verses that we sang all the time is Acts 1-8, where it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And so I remember for like 10 years, um, I could not shake the song that we sang um, with that, those lyrics every week. And then I realized this last week that for the life of me, I can't remember the tune to that song, even though I know the words. In fact, this is gonna be, I, which is probably good because I won't sing it for you. But here's my question. First service, there was one person. Are there any old, 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 old Rivites that remember the tune to that song? Any in the service? They, wait, wait, somebody? Okay, 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 can you sing it for us? Um, in fact, I, you can come up here, I'll give you a mic. Um, so, but you do remember the tune. You're not lying. Because we're not gonna believe you unless you sing. Um, <laughs> So, okay, so we won't make her do it, but in the first service, true story, dude sang the song, the whole thing, stood right over there. It was awesome. You guys missed it. But, so the, here's the thing. What I realized was through singing that song over and over and over out of Acts 1-8, it's one of those verses that I ended up memorizing, and it ended up changing how I view the church. Because this whole idea of, of Acts 1-8 is Jesus makes this promise to his disciples um, that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself, God himself is going to come live inside of them. And he's going to come with the gift of power. And that power is going to give them the power to do something specific. 
And it is to go to the entire world and tell them about Jesus. Starting in their city, which is Jerusalem. Moving to sort of their county, which is Judea to their state, uh, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. That's an oversimplification, but that sort of idea. And what happened is when, when my wife and I started attending RIV, we found a church here that really believed that this was possible. In fact, one of the things Steve Summerlot, who's one of the pastors at the West Side, who was one of our pastors back then, used to always pray at the end of his sermons is he'd say, God, would you just please do this once again through us? Because what Steve knew was that Jesus has done this over and over. That in the, the first century, this idea of the gospel exploding out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth happened as far as they understood the ends of the earth to be, right? As far as they could imagine it to be. And then the gospel would go out across the globe again, around the world. And now there are places that there are unreached people groups who have never heard the gospel. And Riverview plant has a church plant, by the way, in one of them. I can't even tell you where it is. But we have one that we have sent there with one of our staffers. And now there's places like online spaces where people inhabit and we need to go to those places to share the gospel. So this is something that was promised to the early church. And Riverview, when I started attending like 30 odd years ago, was a church that when they heard Jesus say, you will be my witnesses, they said, okay. And it was a group of people that their lives got turned inside out by the gospel, and it was no longer about them, it was about other people. Because they had seen Jesus do amazing things, they believed that he would do it again. Because this is what followers of Jesus do. The Christian worldview basically says, sin has marred this world, and there's only one rescuer that is coming to save us, and his name is Jesus. And we are desperate witnesses. We are desperate messengers to the world because we want the world to know that they are loved by Jesus. Now, the first time this gospel message after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension to heaven, the first time this message was proclaimed happened when the apostle Peter, who was armed with the power that came from the Holy Spirit, stood up and preached his first sermon in the city of Jerusalem, and that 120 people that launched the church, it exploded to over 3,000 in one afternoon. And when the church grew to over 3,000 in one afternoon, this was the response, Acts 2, uh, 42. It says this. It says they, the, this church, this 3,000 plus people, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This early church had their lives turned inside out, and what they believed was Jesus was coming back any minute. <laughs> Like their whole job was to, to take the, 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 this message that they've been given through the power of the Holy Spirit and to tell everybody they could tell because it was going to explode around the world and then Jesus was going to imminently return. And so everything was different. It didn't matter what their life was like the day before. Now it was all about Jesus. They committed themselves to a whole bunch of stuff, including the apostles' teaching. In Ephesians 2, uh, verse 20, we're told that the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation of the church. 
Well, who are the apostles and prophets? Well, the apostles were the, the people who saw Jesus eye to eye and got their marching orders directly from him. This includes the 12 disciples, as well as the guy who replaced Judas and the apostle Paul. And the prophets were men and women that got infallible direct messages from God so that they could speak those out to the church. And the reason that was so important was because we didn't have the New Testament yet. And yet as the apostles and the prophets did their work and laid the foundation of the church, we got the fulfilled scripture that we have today. In fact, they would be kind of shocked that we have this book. They'd be shocked because they believe Jesus was coming back any second, not like more than 2,000 years later, and they never would have believed that their stuff got written down and put into this book, but carried along by the Holy Spirit, they were inspired to give the very words of God that we have today. And so the centerpiece of their devotion was this, the apostles' teaching. It was transmitted to them verbally, and now it's transmitted to us in written word. They were also devoted to the fellowship. And, and fellowship is one of those words that um, we, we don't really have the full New Testament grasp on. I grew up in a church, a little church that had a fellowship hall. Anybody grew up in the church that had a fellowship hall? Right, was it in the basement? Of course it was, right. It was in the basement. There was percolated coffee with uh, styrofoam cups and jello molds, right? And what would you do in the fellowship hall? You'd fellowship, right. You'd, you'd hang out in the fellowship hall. And so we tend to have this mindset of, of fellowship is just kind of this hanging out. And that is part of what fellowship is. But the original Greek word here that's translated to fellowship is the word koinonia. And the word koinonia has three important elements. Contribution, participation, and sharing. It's not just hanging out in a church basement, drinking coffee out of a percolator. It is about participating, it's not about consuming. It's about contributing. It's about sharing and not hoarding. And these early churches, immediately, because of what Jesus had done for them, they were ready to go do this for the world. And I've been thinking a lot about koinonia lately because it's my theory that koinonia is the thing that we lost the most during COVID. And by we, I mean the local church universal, not just RIV, but just churches. You see, RIV, just like most churches, pivoted online quickly. Um, we stayed online longer than most churches, rightly or wrongly. We can do a postmortem on that someday. Um, but we stayed online longer. We still have online services. And what happened in many churches, as I go around and talk to a lot of pastors, not just here in the U.S., but around the world, is we have moved from church being a koinonia place where we participate and we contribute and we share and church has moved into a place that we consume. And I think that that's one of the things that happened because of COVID. In fact, there's a, there's a stat that came out recently by, uh, by the Barna Group. And what they found was that 15% of people who say that they are a follower of Jesus, they now, post-COVID, attend multiple churches because they found multiple churches during COVID. Everybody's online for the first time. People who know uh, internet, they jumped around. And so now they're attending multiple churches. And about 20% of people attend church exclusively online now. And about 26% of people attend sometimes online, sometimes in person. And I talk to people every single week that that's the case. And I don't think that any of that is necessarily negative. I think all of those can be good things with one huge caveat as long as we don't lose koinonia. 
as long as we have a place where we contribute, participate, and share. And I'm not just talking to people who are joining us online today. I'm talking about all of us, even in person. Because sometimes we can get into a habit of attending, not contributing, not participating, not sharing, and just having our butt kind of in a chair. (laughs) And in the early church, their lives became so interconnected that the apostles' teaching drove them to koinonia and to the breaking of bread. And breaking of bread is not just the Lord's Supper communion. It is at the most basic level that. But the church in the early centuries would gather together in homes to eat meals together. In fact, the first century, they began to call it love feasts. In fact, that term actually shows up in Scripture, and it shows up in first century writings. There was a guy in AD 112, his name was Pliny, and he was writing to the emperor, trying to get the emperor to understand Christians. And what he said is, by 112 AD, he's like, they would gather for their worship services, and then, let me read his exact quote, he said, when this was over, the church services, it was their custom to reassemble, right? So they would gather, then they would go apart, and then they would reassemble to eat a common, harmless meal. Now, what is he saying? He's like, they hang out and eat like they're a family. Like, it's so strange. These people don't just gather for their worship services. They want to hang out with each other in their homes and just eat like, I don't know, just mac and cheese. They're They're just having a normal meal together. The devotion that the early church had spilled out from their large church services into their homes where they ate and drank and talked about Jesus. And then they devoted themselves to prayer. Because as individuals and families in a church, we should be known as people who pray. Look at this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And notice, that's not a command. It's not saying, now, everybody has to do this. What are they saying? This is the thing that happens. Right? When Jesus invades your spaces, right? When he gets into your lives and into your communities, this is just what happens. He starts changing people from the inside out, and the first church just lived this new kind of life. Look at the next thing it says. It says, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. Check this out. All the believers were together. Anybody remember how many they were? More than 3,000. And they would still gather together. The first church in the Bible is the first mega church in the Bible, by the way. The very first mega church in the world was the first church. Over 3,000 people hanging up in their big gathering, which must have been a riot, right? But then they went into their homes. Verse 45, it says, they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Why? Because they knew Jesus was coming any second. Their whole life was about mission. Their whole life was about others. They didn't want anybody to have needs. And they knew that the the apostles' teaching drove them. Jesus cared for people. He brought, and people will not listen to the message of the gospel if they're starving, right? And there's people in need. And so they took care of the people in need in their community. And they didn't worry about it. Someone had a need. They sold their stuff and go and took care of the need because they needed to tell people about Jesus. They believed that the gospel was going to explode around the world and Jesus would be right back so they had no need for material things. And then on top of that, they had learned from Jesus not to store their treasures on earth, in earth where moth, 
uh, and rust destroy, but to store their treasures in heaven. Their focus had moved from being inward to being outward and upward. It was about others, and it showed in how they used their time, their talents, their treasure, and and there was this camaraderie in the early church, and the phrase that could describe it the best was, everyone was filled with awe. They knew that what was happening was something weird, and it wasn't anything that a human could do. It was God's power working through ordinary people. Think about it. Peter preaches his first sermon. He's a fisherman. If you ever find my first sermon, burn it, <laughs> right? First sermons are not good, right? They're not. I have found, I've had people come up to me and say, you remember when you preached on that? And I'm like, oh yeah, that was borderline heresy. I do remember that. So don't ever bring it up again, right? First sermons are terrible. But Peter preaches his first sermon, has more than 3,000 converts. That is not something a human does. That is something that God does. And these 3,000 people believed that they were part of something huge and they had something greater to live for. The day before, they were punching their clock at an unfulfilling job or feeding an ungrateful family a meal. But today it was about Jesus. And I got to say, that's what it felt like when I first stumbled into the Kellogg Center with Riv 30 years ago. In fact, I remember my my wife and I, we would always show up late. um, So, ish, we love it. Um, we were always late, and then we would come in late, and then we would sit in the back, and then we would dip quick and get out of there before anybody would talk to us. So it was like, ran out of the back of the room. It was really great. Um, Until one of the pastors, Paul Denherter, who was a pastor here until he retired, and he chased me down into the parking ramp at the Kellogg Center. Chased me all the way down, and then he said, hey, I've noticed you guys have been coming in, out, in, out, in, out the back. He was like, can I buy you lunch? I'm like, sure. And then he bought me lunch 300 consecutive times, and then I became a pastor. See, this is what happens. Something changes inside of people, and they are driven toward other people. And I remember being in awe when we first started attending Riv. So then the next thing that happens in the early church is, is God uses Peter and John to heal a man who'd been paralyzed since birth. And then the guy stands up. We'll just pick up that story in chapter 3, verse 9. It says, um, all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the, uh, the beautiful gate at the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. And while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. Now, here's Solomon's Colonnade. This is where they were meeting as a church. Solomon's Colonnade was uh, like 24 feet wide um, with like 100-foot-tall Corinthian columns, if you can imagine that. And it was on the outside of the temple area. So Gentiles could hang out there. So you got the temple area. And then just outside of it is this spot where non-Jewish people could hang out. And that's where the church hung out. And so when it says that they hung out at the temple, that's where they hung out, is out in that area. It was situated on the east side of the court there. And what's cool about this is this guy's hanging on to Peter and John. He's just been healed. Miraculous things have happened. Peter and John are proclaiming the message that Jesus is divine on that spot. And yet on that spot, if you go back in your Bibles to John 10, 30, that's the spot that Jesus stood at when he said, I and the Father are one. Jesus proclaimed his divinity in that spot. And now that the church is launched, the church is proclaiming his divinity in that spot. And that's what happens. Peter 
continued to preach the gospel, and because he did, he was arrested. And then he was eventually released, and this was his response to being released, Acts 4, verse 32. It says, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. I could preach that half sentence for like a month. For there was not a needy person among them, because all who owned land or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Isn't that amazing? The believers, every one of these 3,000 plus people, were united in heart and mind. And everything in their lives had changed. And, and, and so now, they're no longer worried about themselves. Each individual Christian was worried about the other. And as needs arose in their community, they just took care of them. Because compassion and extravagant generosity is the proper response to what Jesus has done for us. The compassion he's given us. The extravagant generosity he's poured out on us. And so what we're doing is for the next five weeks, and by the way, that was the longest series introduction of all time. <laughs> what we're doing for the next five weeks is, is we're going to talk about what would it be like if Riv once again became like this. And we're calling this series Entrust. And I love the word entrust because it means to commit to another with confidence. The idea that we are committed to others, committed to one another with confidence because this is what the church is about. And one of the things that's really cool, we haven't talked about this a lot this year, but this year Riverview is 45 years old. We started at Michigan. You can clap. That one. I saw it. You were like... Like this, I saw that. You wanted to clap, but nobody wanted to clap with you, and you were nervous. That happens in worship, by the way. Let me, a little tangent. In worship, if you want to raise your hand, raise your hand. If you want to clap, clap. Don't let, you know, just, just go for it. Yeah, so good job. Um, so, um, but basically, Riverview is 45 years old this year, and what that means is that we're roughly in our third generation. You can think of our first generation as 1977 to 2001. That's when we were nomads on campus at Michigan State, moving from building to building to building, um, and eventually settling in at the Kellogg Center for a little bit of time. This was the foundation of our church. It was when we were planting tons of churches, reaching tons of young people. They were spinning off from there, but we were a tiny little church. And then you can think of 2001 to say, we'll call it COVID, 2001 to 2020 as the second generation of RIV, and that's the generation of people that, that built this building out in Holt. This is the, the, this is the generation that, that went down into the city of Lansing and got a location down there that used to be a mattress store and a nightclub, and it looked like both at the same time, and launched a church there. It's the generation that went to the west side and acquired a building that was owned by a Methodist church out there, and they called us and asked us if we wanted it, and then we planted other west side venue out there. This is the, the generation that planted tons of churches and, and expanded. And did all. You can think of that generation is generation number two, and now really we're entering generation number three at RIV. In fact, the tagline that we have for this series is from many, for many, to one, because we believe that this is the story of the church and it's the story of RIV. Many people, more than I can count, have sacrificed so you can hear the gospel every week. They sacrificed and they continue to sacrifice because their life has been turned inside out by Jesus and they want you to know 
in a world that is ravished by sin, someone loves you. Jesus loves you, and because of that, we love you. So what we're asking during this series is everyone to consider helping Riv continue this legacy into a third generation. And so we're going to ask everyone to commit, just like we did in the early church, just like early Riv, to three things, community, mission, and finances. We're going to ask you over the course of the next five weeks, would you consider joining a Riv community? And we'll talk about that a little bit in a second. Second, where are you going to live on mission? Because every one of us is to live on mission for Jesus. And third, what do you plan on giving? And what we mean by that is we did this a number of years ago, eight or so years ago, and it worked really well. We built a two-year budget. And so what we did is we built a two-year budget of everything that we hoped that God would do around RIV. Like things we're dreaming of is, is hiring a, a lot more young and diverse staff. Um, this is something we've been building on. And we've been building that, and, uh, our intern program, our residency program, things like that. We're talking about maybe building a, a missional fund. And what we love about this idea is we want to build a missional fund so that your RIV community that you're in can come up with a good way to love our city and love our towns, love our neighborhoods. And then you can apply for a grant to go do that thing. And so then the Riverview family will help fund that so that you can go live on mission in your community. And, and we've got everything in our budget from, you know, toilet paper and coffee as well and all of that. So what we did is on your way out today, we're going to give this to you. And on this, on the back, it has our two-year budget. So when you read all these numbers, it's a two-year number. And we're going to talk about that more in the coming weeks. But what would be helpful for us is to know in a couple weeks, we're going to ask you, would you tell us what you think you may be able to give over the next two years to everything we're doing at RIV so we can build our budget off of that? That's what we're working towards. So these are the three questions we are working on. So let's go back to the early church for a second. Acts 5. This is what it says in Acts 5, starting in verse 12. It says, Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's colonnade. Still, they're still hanging out there. No one dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Hold on to that. That's a weird verse. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing number, multitudes of both men and women. Now think about this. They're still meeting in this Gentile area, this Solomon's colonnade just outside of the temple. And now the group has grown so much and is starting to get a reputation for what they're doing that it's kind of freaking some people out. Right? It's weirding them out a little bit, and yet every day, more and more people are joining them in what they're doing. So there's this group, they have a good reputation, and they're freaking people out, and people are joining them. That's kind of really a good sweet spot. It's like a little Venn diagram right there. And so the apostles um, were beginning to raise such a ruckus that they were arrested again. So this part of the story, they're arrested again, and yet an angel sets them free from prison, um, and they were told, um, you're in prison for preaching about Jesus. And so they're like, yeah, and so we're going to keep doing that. So they're arrested again. And while they're arrested this next time, they're like, okay, will you stop preaching Jesus? And they're like, no. So now they're back in prison for like the third time, I think, according to my count. They've been told to stop preaching Jesus, and they're trying to figure out what to do with these guys. And then one guy... One of these religious leaders speaks up, and this is what he says. He says, so in the present case, the case of the apostles who won't stop talking about Jesus, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. <laughs> For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But it, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. 
And they were persuaded by him. So after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, because of course they still had to beat him up, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Hold on to that. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. Beat him up. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Isn't that cool? Because we got beat up in the name of Jesus, we think that's kind of great. And every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They wouldn't shut up about Jesus, and we're not going to either. From the very start of the church, this was the model. The first century, the church had large gatherings focused on the proclamation of the gospel, and and the church had smaller meetings in homes where koinonia happened, where there's breaking of bread and, 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 and meals and spurring one another on to, to, to love and good deeds. And, and that's why we launched this fall something new. If you remember going through COVID and before COVID for a long time, we've had life groups. And some people have been in life groups for a long time and they love their life groups and they're awesome and I'll hold on to that for a second. But what we realized is we needed something new. And so we launched this thing that we're calling Riv Communities. And we think they're going to be the lifeblood of our church. And, and what is a Riv community? Well, it's kind of hard to explain because it's koinonia. <laughs> what we're doing is we're encouraging people to open up their homes and other public spaces and gather with a group of like 20-ish to 30-ish people to meet twice a month to just share their lives. Food, conversation, serving opportunities, coming up with ways to serve and love our community, taking care of one another's needs, all kind of there. It's a place where you can go and be as known as you want to be, but because there's 20 or 30 people there, you don't have to kind of get too intimate with people that you don't know yet. You can take your time with all of that. And so when we first announced this, um, we had 378 households, not 378 people, <laughs> 378 households say that they were in and they were interested. So we kind of threw the whole thing onto a map. Uh, by the way, map of the Lansing area. This is a little heat map to show you where those 378 households are. And so this blue line right here, this is where all those people are who said they were interested in being in a Rift community. And the darker areas, you know, Grand Ledge Street, Lansing, Holt, DeWitt, tiny one up in Bath, Williamson, tiny Dansville. Mason's got a pretty big one, a little blob over there. But basically we saw that this is where the most need and interest was. And so this fall, we launched 12 RIV communities in these spaces um, because we wanted to be where the heat map was as best as we could. And we went out looking for leaders and we found uh, deacon character leaders in our church who were willing to lead these groups. And so we've appointed them as ministers. We now have 56 ministers that are leading and empowered to lead in their homes and in their communities to come up with great ideas for reaching people for Jesus and living on mission. Just allowing that to be radically free and for people to, to come up with ideas and just go do them and live in community and we'll just see what God does. So here's the thing. We're gonna launch at least two more by the end of November. We know that. Um, We know we need about 8 to 12 more ministers that are willing to step into these spaces and and help out. And then we're going to ask you, by the end of this series, would you consider joining one of the RIV communities? Which means we're going to have more, and we're just going to have to figure out how it's going to be messy. But messy is great. That's what we see from the book of Acts, right? Messy is great, so we're going to be messy on this thing. But here's the deal. If you already have awesome biblical community... We're not telling you to stop doing that. 
If you've got a life group that is really, you're pouring into one another, we're not taking that away from anybody. What we're doing is we're saying, if you don't have koinonia in your life, a place where you can participate, contribute, and share with one another, consider jumping into a RIV community. Because that'll be a place for you to do that. Most of them are multi-generational. Uh, we all, we've got one at MSU, one at LCC that are more college-specific. Um, but even within men, we've got, you know, freshmen to seniors, which is a little bit multi-generational right there, right? Um, now, to be fair, the early church, it wasn't all sunshine and light. So we should probably point out that it got pretty bad. Chapter 6, you get six chapters into the church, it goes downhill. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. In other words, there's all these widows that need to be taken care of, and they're like, yo, we're getting food, they're not getting food, who's going to fix this? The apostles never set out to start an organization, now they needed an organization. (laughs) They needed systems and structures and processes to make sure they took care of people, but they're trying to figure out, oh, what do we do? Because we want this to be messy. It's great. It's messy. It's reaching people. We're just getting imprisoned, and the angels are letting us out, and you know, all kinds of great stuff. What are we going to do? And so this is what they did. The 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples. That's all of them, right? And said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty, but we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so what we see here early on, chapter 6, is the church has got to figure out how to organize itself. Because you can organically grow to a certain point, you can get messy to a certain point, but then some systems have to be put into place. And, 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 and it was natural in the first century, you see it here, and it's natural today to think that the ministry in the church should be done by the professionals. But you see immediately, what did they do? They were like, no, 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 no. The church does the ministry. The church does the church stuff. These apostles were committing themselves to prayer and ministry of the word, and then the church was to be the church. And and actually, we see that idea expanded in the book of Ephesians, where in Ephesians 4, it says this. It says, and he, that's Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. And so think of it this way. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation, like we saw earlier, right? Then there's evangelists. Those are people who just love talking to people about Jesus and you can't get them to shut up about it, right? That's an evangelist. And some of you are wired to be evangelists. And you should be doing that all the time. Everybody that you can get to talk to you about Jesus, do it. Just, just go talk to all those people about Jesus. That's, go do it. Uh, and then there are pastors and teachers as well. And so I, I believe, this is my view, is that the apostles and prophets, we needed them to lay the foundation of the church until we had this document. And now in the church, we still have evangelists. We still have pastors. We still have teachers. And their job is to equip the saints. Who are the saints? Y'all are, right, us, y'all are. The saints are Christians, all Christians, to do what? To do the work of ministry. The church does the church stuff. The church goes out and builds up the body of Christ. That's what we're all to do. If you wonder if you are called to ministry, you are called to ministry. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a ministry.
You have something missional to do. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. Now, the apostles got this, and that's why they give this instructions. They're like, listen, we're going to preach and teach, um, and you guys figure out how to take care of the widows, right? And, and they threw that out there. And go back to that chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 7. It says this, so the word of God spread because they got organized. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. And that caused problems like you would not believe. In the next couple chapters, persecution hit the church really hard because of all this. Because now you got priests coming to Christ, and, and, and this is getting even worse. And so in chapter 8, it says this. It says, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Jesus had promised seven chapters before, you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. This is exactly what Jesus promised. But I don't think anyone who had heard that Jesus had promised that he was going to give them power, would have thought the way the whole world was going to be reached was through persecution. Not only was that not what they expected, it probably wasn't their first choice. And yet Jesus sometimes fulfills his promises in ways that we don't expect and sometimes don't even want. And I wonder right now with the scattering of Christians coming off of COVID, if this is something none of us would have expected None of us would have wanted, but it's an opportunity now to reach more people for Jesus. Because just like in the first century, sin is ravaging our world. Just like the first century, there's political strife. There's social injustice. There's differing worldviews competing for the minds and hearts of the people in our community. And just like in the first century of church, there are followers of Jesus. There's us. And we carry good news. And the good news is we can't rescue ourselves, but Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the only one who did this perfectly. We didn't do COVID perfectly. We're not doing church perfectly. We ain't ever gonna do it perfectly. Jesus is the only one who gets it right. And Jesus lived that sinless life, died on the cross, was buried, rose again, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and did the craziest thing, gave us the keys. It's a now, go reach people. I don't know about you, that's crazy. That does not sound like a good plan, Jesus. Don't trust us to do this. But he did. He did it in the first century in a way that no one expected him to. And I'm praying that perhaps Jesus would do it one more time through us. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the story of the early church. And... We just pray that you would do it again. Would you help us to, with the power of the Holy Spirit, go into our Jerusalem, our city of Lansing, to our Judea, the Ingham, Clinton, Eaton County area, to our Samaria, Michigan, and to the ends of the world for you. Would you help us to be a light in this community, to live on mission in this community, to live such a life that is turned inside out that it propels us out of the doors of this building 
into our community to live a koinonia-style life that people will be drawn to? Would you do it in such a way that we can't take credit for any of it? We just pray that people would see you more than they would see us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.